Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Masters of Moments. Today's episode is between Jake Warzak and Gabe Bodie. Gabe Bodie is the CEO of Tecton Group, which focuses on sub-institutional multifamily assets in the Colorado Front Range and Mountain communities. Tecton Group's goal is to maximize yield through heavy value-add renovations and ground-up developments. They talk about everything from how Gabe sources his deals, why he structures the capital the way he does, the value and strategy behind sub-institutional real estate, and the opportunity that exists today in his marketplace of Colorado. Lastly, they talk about work-life balance and why it was important for Gabe to set up the business the way that he did in order to maximize his entire life. Please enjoy the conversation today between Jake and Gabe Bodie. So I thought a really cool place to start would be to understand the mindset that you had to go from a real estate or sorry, a Wall Street background into real estate with no real experience in real estate. It's not something that many people do. And I think it's really, really interesting. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful question. I, for those who don't know, I yeah, spent the first, call it 40 years of my life on, uh, on finance in one way or another. I have an undergraduate degree in finance, a graduate degree in finance. I CFA charter holder, uh, worked in public equities for 15 years. And then about a decade ago, I started buying real estate and started out just, it wasn't really an intentional choice. It was, Hey, this seems interesting. I have some time. Let's try it out. And then the next thing you know, my first property I paid 300,000 bucks for, I was clearing 200 bucks a month after debt service, thinking, wow, this is interesting. And then the first lease expired and I didn't know anything about leasing, but I posted an ad on Craigslist and released it for 500 bucks more. So now all of a sudden my monthly cash flow went from 200 to 700. And I was like, huh, 700 times a whole bunch of properties could be kind of interesting. And really just started from there. It was not an intentional choice to go into real estate, but ended up buying a fourplex, a fiveplex, and a duplex, kind of all with my own money and my partner's money between 2013 and 2015. Learned a ton. We renovated the properties from the ground up. We got into gut rehabs. I did the accounting. I did the finance. I did the property management. He did the maintenance and the renovations. And so we just kind of learned by doing, which uh, honestly is probably the best way to learn. Obviously, I don't have an institutional real estate background. I have a, a pretty institutional background in terms of finance, but not not in terms of real estate and just learned by doing. And then in 2016, started raising outside capital and kind of the rest is history. We've 
Water built 676 units here in Colorado, done about $120 million worth of real estate. And I don't know the exact number of, of equity dollars we've deployed, but I guess it's between 30 and $40 million of equity that we've deployed. Um, so not a, not a huge shop, but really enjoy what we're doing. Feel like we have the right team in place. Feel like at the right point in the market for somebody who approaches investing like I do which is certainly uh, a little bit go against the green. I was beating my head against the wall in, in 2021 saying, how in God's name is anybody making these numbers work? And I'm, I'm optimistic or hopeful that we'll have an opportunity to go on offense sometime in, uh, in the near future. But it was, a, it was a somewhat zigzagging, unintentional way to get into real estate, but it has been uh, the most satisfying career choice I've ever made. When you were back in that moment, thinking about making the leap from Wall Street into real estate, what personal considerations were running through your mind and how did that impact the leap? Because whether it's real estate or any entrepreneurial business, leaving a job that has substantial amount of security, an HR department, healthcare, safety, an office, all this stuff, and then going to do your own thing is completely different. And I want to understand that side of it. Yeah. It, it, and if, I appreciate you indulging me a little bit here with my own idiosyncratic approach to uh, wealth and money. Rewinding way back to the beginning, I grew up in a lower middle-class family. We never wanted for anything, but we, we, you know, we went on vacation and we slept in tents. We didn't sleep in hotels and I don't think I had a passport or took a plane until I was a teenager, but I had a wonderful childhood. I just, my parents fought a lot and they fought a lot about money. And that was a driving factor for me to make money and went to my guidance counselor and oh, I don't know, junior year and said, Hey, what's the best business school? Cause somebody told me business is the way you make money. And they said, well, you should look into Wharton. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll go there. And was fortunate enough to be accepted into Wharton undergrad when I was uh, 18 years old, or I matriculated when I was 18 years old, and spent 20 years on this very traditional Wall Street money treadmill, where it's the only scorecard that matters is how much money you have. And, and that was from my freshman year of college through when I turned 37, 38 years old. And I was on a, on a uh, path, I was making good money, I had saved a fair amount of it. And realize that for me, and I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, money isn't everything. And ended up getting off that treadmill, not necessarily with the direct intention of getting into real estate, but just realizing that I was, I was unhappy and not receiving the psychic income I wanted to have uh, in my previous position. And I was very fortunate to have the means to leave that job and not necessarily know what was coming next. And there's something romantic and a little fun about letting life unfold and seeing what happens. And that was what happened to me in 2012 and 2013 is I just tried different things, figured out what, what appealed to me. And it ended up being real estate, which was you know the most compelling thing in the world. And now I have this opportunity to both create generational wealth for me and my family, but also to live a life that I'm, I'm happy with and proud of. And I have full control over as opposed to to somebody else. So I say it's a it's terrifying proposition for anybody to leave that safety of the corporate cocoon, but 
for me, it was a, a late thirties realization of money for me, not being everything, trying to find a balanced life, realizing how competitive I was that not doing anything was not going to be an answer and finding real estate and finding that sub-institutional real estate spoke to me in a lot of ways that public equities investing no longer spoke to me. And I, I think a lot of that had to do with the efficiency of the markets, if you will. You know, I, I covered large cap financials. I ran the financial services team at Janus Capital for about six years and during the financial crisis, coincidentally in 2008. But the, the inefficiency, the opportunities to play what I view to be a winnable game really appealed to me much more so than making a big salary and trying to beat hundreds of thousands of other professionals in large cap financials. And so, so that's what spoke to me and, and continues to speak to me about sub-institutional real estate. And we've, we bought deals every year since 2014 and. We've bought deals every year since 2013 that we thought were uh, grossly mispriced. And uh, I think any every market, every real estate market that I've ever seen, if you know it well, you can find grossly mispriced assets. And and that's sort of what we do. I should say every year except for 2023. We've, we've bought one asset this year. I thought it was a good deal. It was not grossly mispriced. But every year from 2014 to 2022, we bought a deal where I knew going in that it was it was going to be a home run. How much of an impact did your childhood have on you wanting to create generational wealth for your family and then using real estate as a means to do that? Because I think real estate creates wealth in different ways than a salary or a W-2, which was your original path. A lot. You know, I think real estate has a very tangible, long duration approach to wealth. You know, I always tell my friends and family that will listen to me that it's a somewhat of a foolproof way to get rich slow if you don't use too much leverage and you're picky about what you buy. But get rich slow doesn't appeal to a lot of people. Get rich fast is is the American ethos. And I, again, was fortunate enough in my late 30s to have done well enough that I was no longer seeking a paycheck. I was seeking an opportunity to create something lasting for me and my family. Since that day, I, I've, I've married my wife and, and had a child. And, and so legacy certainly starts to, to play a, a role in how I think about things. And, you know, my goal is to, to live for another 40 or 50 years and to leave him an empire that has stepped up in basis. And hopefully it's something that appeals to him. He's six. So I don't know that he has any clue what, what real estate is at this point, but he did put on his going back to school, little chalkboard that all the kids have that he wanted to be a builder when he grew up, just like that. I love so it. That, that That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. So how in your investment strategy, are you balancing the transactional nature of raising capital with also creating generational wealth? in assets. Are you able to do both at the same time? I think so. And and, and there's a saying on, I, I never worked at Goldman Sachs. I had one job offer, but I never, I never worked there. But they have a saying about greed is good, but long-term greed is way better than short-term greed. And, and that's kind of my approach. It's like, I'm not trying to maximize today's income. Like, 
between my wife and I, we're doing just fine. We can live the lifestyle that we want to live. And if you take the approach of, hey, I'm trying to maximize long-term wealth creation for both me and my my investors, then you, you don't force things. And I think where people get into some trouble in real estate is, is when they force things as opposed to taking what the market gives them. It was really easy to raise capital. It was real hard to find good deals in 2021. And a lot of people said, well, I'll just go ahead and buy deals. And I looked at the, the performas and the numbers and I said, how could this ever make sense? Unless you're a sewage, you're straight, stay at zero forever and rents are going to grow 20% a year. There's no way this makes any sense. But if you're thinking about short-term greed, it made a lot of sense. Hey, I'm going to pocket another couple million bucks of act fees and I have non-recourse debt. I have non-recourse equity. If things go sideways, oops, we'll, we'll start all over again. I just have a, a different mindset. I, I would say it's probably not a wealth maximizing mindset. Like I'm not trying to make as much as humanly possible, but it does give me the freedom to act swiftly when the market gives me opportunities and do nothing when the market doesn't give me opportunities. My goal in real estate is to never be forced to do anything. I don't want to be forced to do a refi. I don't want to be forced to buy. I don't want to be forced to sell. You know, it's the people that get forced to act that the results aren't always what they wanted them to be. And we're seeing that right now. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what you're seeing in, in your markets, but we're slowly seeing in Denver real estate a realization that the 10 year ain't going to 2% anytime soon. I think it's at 425 last time I looked, 424, something like that. And the rate at which you can refi real estate ain't going below six, maybe five and a half, six anytime soon. And so then your options start become limited, right? If you have floating rate debt that's coming due or you have floating rate debt that's about to float or a rate cap is expiring, like you don't have a lot of options and you're not forced to either make an unpleasant call to your investors and say, guys, I need 2 million bucks to buy a new rate cap, which is probably not a very pleasant conversation, or you sell at whatever the market's willing to bear. And so our, our business model is to try to never be forced to do anything, whether it's buy, sell, refi, what have you. Knock on wood to date, we've never, never been forced to do anything and, and we've been able to be proactive and hopefully that will continue. What are some of the key principles that you rely on to create this like not being forced to sell environment? Is there anything that you have to go into a deal with that you set up a deal or just your general outlook that protects you against being a forced seller? I mean, it, it goes back to the not wealth maximizing strategy. You know, let's just say there's 300 potential deals that sell in a year in my market. And somebody who was more risk seeking or less risk, less safety oriented, margin of safety oriented might find 30 of those compelling. So 10% of the deals on offer. And I might find five of them compelling. It's just that my hurdle rates are higher. So we talked a little bit about this. It's, you know, not rocket science. I've talked to it on Twitter and a lot of other people think the same way, but, but my primary underwriting metric is to have the stabilized yield on cost exceed the current debt constant. So right now, I just got a quote from Freddie. It was six and a quarter. The debt constant is around 740 on a 30-year AM. So I need to be able to have a stabilized yield in excess of 740. Somebody else might say, I need positive leverage. So anything that stabilizes to north of six and a quarter is acceptable to them. Just the fact that I have that, that higher 
margin of safety that I'm looking for, you know, tends to lead to situations where we're not forced to do anything. We, we, we are looking at a refi right now where despite our interest rate going up 250 basis points, we can take out cash because we've done so well on the deal and the leverage was so prudent. Most situations where interest rates are going from four and a quarter to 675, <laughs> you're probably putting cash in as opposed to taking out cash. So it, it, it really just comes down to trying to do great deals. I've used this analogy before, but it's, it's a Buffett slash Ted Williams analogy about waiting for the fat pitch, which is Ted Williams, arguably the greatest hitter in American baseball, last guy to bat 400, split the strike zone into 77 different baseball-sized areas. And he figured out, you know, middle of the plate, I can hit 400. And low and away, I'm going to hit 230. And so I'm not going to swing at the low and away pitches where I'm going to swing hit 230. If the pitcher's good enough to throw three in a row in the strike zone long and away, they might be able to get him out. Buffett likes to say, well, there's no called strikes in investing. And I, and I tend to agree with that. So I can watch a hundred strikes in the 230 zone go over the plate, waiting for those 400 strikes to come down the middle of the plate. And that, that's just our business model is waiting for fat pitches. Feel very gracious for the team that we have. That allows me to to wait for the fat pitches in the sense that we we don't have a lot of overhead that forces us to do deals. We have a team of four. Everyone has a role, and everyone gets to participate in the upside of the deals we do. And and so yeah, it's it's really just about being picky on the deals we do. And I used to have a saying, and 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 realize in, in retrospect how naive it was. But there's no such thing as bad buildings, just bad prices. And I would I would buy anything as long as it was buying 70 cent dollars, right? Buying a dollar price for 70 cents, I'm in. It doesn't matter where it is. doesn't matter what issues it has. And I, I think I've matured away from that into more of looking for assets that have a chance to stand for the long term. And, and you're not going to want to own a C-class asset forever. You're going to bash your head through a wall eventually with the challenges of, of doing that. And so we've migrated away. We, we, we bought 448 apartments in a, in a C-class neighborhood. We cut our teeth there. We learned a tremendous amount. I truly believe if you can buy, renovate, and operate real estate in the worst market in your worst submarket in your city, you're probably going to be able to do it pretty well in any other market. And so lots of wonderful lessons learned, but not an area that we're, we're pursuing at the moment. And, and I tend to think of those as as great sort of trading sardines, right? You can buy an asset for 70 cents and prove it and sell it for the dollar. And you've made whatever 30 over 70 is, you know, 40, 45% or something. And that's great. But, you know, you haven't, you haven't created long-term wealth. You just, you're in the turnover business as opposed to the storage business. And I'd rather be in the long-term wealth business. And if you do all the work, to stabilize a building that was mismanaged, needed a bunch of capex, and is in a great location, you might as well hold on and enjoy the fruits of your labor for a while, as opposed to just selling it as soon as you've you've done the fix-up. And that's a mindset that's evolved over time. The more deals we've done, I think we've done 24 deals, 57 buildings, and learned a ton along the way. And and I think that's that's a big piece of it, right? Is having an evolving 
approach to investing. Like, like I, 30 year old Gabe probably would have been so arrogant to think I know better than the market. And 49 year old Gabe says, I really don't know a whole ton. And so I'm willing to learn. And that's, that's my approach right now is, is constantly evolving, building a margin of safety, waiting for fat pitches, capitalizing prudently and delivering for our investors. I want to talk about what a fat pitch looks like today and what in that fat pitch scenario changes based on whatever's going on in the world or the macro economy. So like, I guess your unlevered yield on cost metric is going to adjust slightly. What else will adjust? And then what doesn't adjust? What is just fixed? So implicit in my mental model around valuation is that our markets are attractive long-term, right? If, if I had a view that the front range of Colorado would not grow faster than the United States in population and jobs over the next 20 years, my mental model would be incomplete. Um, so there's sort of this implicit assumption that people will continue to want to live here. The population of Denver, which is currently 3 million, will be 4.5 to 5 million by 2050. That, that's implicit in my assumption. So, so what does a fat pitch look like? A fat pitch can take many characteristics. The fattest of fat pitches have all the characteristics, but one is mismanaged, right? And that's kind of the easiest value add because we're day one, we're going to install professional management, whether it was professionally managed before we bought it or it was poorly managed. But if it's poorly managed, then all of a sudden we've created a bunch of value by collecting rent, you know, by, by, providing maintenance services for the tenants by properly pricing the units like simple i've seen some crazy stuff when i'm buying from some of these folks so that would be one characteristic of a of a fat pitch would be hey it's currently poorly managed when we buy it we're going to have some uplift in profitability just by implementing professional management second would be value accretive capex so when i say value accretive i mean return on your capex dollar that exceeds your going in yield. So if we're buying a deal with an in-place four and a half cap and we pay $150 a door for it and we put in $150,000 a door and we put in $50,000 a door and as a function of that $50,000 renovations, we can get a $500 a month rent bump. Well, that's $50,000, 500 times 12 is 6000 so I made six, what is that, 12% return unlevered on my incremental renovation dollars. And that's where you start dragging up your unlevered yield. You bought it at a five, and now you're dragging up because your incremental dollars are earning a 12. And so second element of a fat pitch deal would be the opportunity for value accretive CapEx dollars. Another recent uh, realization that we had was Overcloseted apartments are compelling. And you might say, why in God's name are overcloseted compartments compelling? Because probably the single most easiest differentiable factor in Class B apartments in Denver is in unit washers and dryers. And if you have an in unit washer dryer, you can generally charge $100 to $125 more than a comparable unit without an in unit washer dryer. People do not want to take their laundry hamper, walk down the hall, walk downstairs, take an outlet, whatever it is, to the laundry room, sit around, maybe get some stuff along. They just want to have it in their unit. 
So a recent deal we bought had, it was a, it was one bedroom, 675 square feet units, and they had plenty of closets in the bedroom. And then they also had two hall closets. One of those hall closets shared a water wall with the bathroom and was directly vented to the outside. So now all of a sudden we can install a stackable washer dryer in a closet that already has a water wall right next to it. So the plumbing is very easy and you can vent directly out of the back of the building. So that's a huge, like incremental, like what is, what does that cost us all in? Probably a thousand dollars for the unit, probably a thousand bucks for the laborers or two thousand bucks. We're getting a hundred, 125 bucks more in rent just for having in unit washer dryer. And then I say the third piece of the fat pitch is an inefficient or poorly managed sales process, right? Like hundred million dollar apartment buildings don't get sold poorly. They don't just like, oh, I inherited this and my brother managed it. Now he died. So I got to sell it. I don't know what it's worth. So I'm going to hire, you know, Joe from Remax to sell it. No offense to Joe, but you know, hundred million dollar pieces of real estate get sold by hiring JLL or CBRE and they have a huge Rolodex and they're going to run a very professional process and they're going to squeeze out every dime that's available. A lot of the sub-institutional real estate that we look at is not an efficient process. It is just, you know, we get a lot of calls on off-market stuff. We get a lot of calls on, oh, somebody's equity just bailed. Can you close in a month? Well, if it's a good enough deal, of course, I can close in a month. And so, so I'd say those are kind of the three characteristics beyond the unlevered yield on cost and beyond the assumption that Denver is going to be a growing economy in the long haul. It would be poorly managed opportunity for creative CapEx and inefficient sales process. I want to talk a little bit about what sub-institutional real estate actually is because not many people, I think, truly know what it is. And then maybe you can discuss some of the market inefficiencies that you see around that asset class. Obviously, there's no hard and fast definition of what sub-institutional is, but in my mind, in my market, our core properties that we're going after are two to $20 million apartment buildings. And I want to avoid two groups of buyers. <laughs> On the low side, I want to avoid mom and pop buyers who tend to have basically a 0% cash on cash per rate at the end of the day. They may not believe that they're but at the end of the day, as long as they're not putting money in every month, they're okay. They're just trying to make money on the appreciation. Well, I have a much higher hurdle rate than that, so I'm not going to be able to pay as much as as a mom and pop to buy a fourplex or a sixplex or an eightplex. Two million in our market tends to weed out some of the mom and pops. On the other end, like my partner is a, a contractor. He knows how to rehab stuff. We have crews that work for us to renovate units. There's not a lot of people buying $10 million apartments that have really highly qualified construction management in-house. If I go compete with, in my market, the local, the largest you know, real estate private equity firms, whether it's BMC or Forum or Carmel, or if I try and compete with them, they're going to knock my face off, right? They're, they're more resourced. They have a lower cost of capital. They have not just in-house construction management. They have in-house GCs. They have everything. What they don't have is the ability to profitably deploy three to $5 million equity checks. They need to write 40 to $50 million equity checks to make, to cover that overhead, to make the business work. And so on the lower, on the higher end, I try and avoid those big boys because 
as I said, it's not necessarily a winnable game. And so I found what I think is a winnable game. And today it has been a winnable game of this bigger than the mom and pop, smaller than the institutional players model. Clearly not a wealth maximizing strategy. Like I have friends whose whole business model is we're only buying, we don't care what we buy. It's going to be outside of Denver. It could be wherever it is. And we're only going to buy 150 unit plus class B and C buildings. And there are a lot of investors in that ballgame. And they could be living in LA, they could be living in Denver, they could be living in Boston, they could be living in Miami. And the act fees and the potential promote and all of that is way more compelling on a 150 unit building than it is on a 30 unit building. And I am fully aware that I am not maximizing my own personal wealth by pursuing that. But I am maximizing my own personal life by not taking that approach. I think there's some risk to going into markets that you don't know super well. I think there's some risk to getting taken advantage of by a construction manager on the other side of the country where you're not on the job site every day. I think there's some risks to having 14 different property managers because you're in 14 different markets. I have, There's some amazingly, stunningly qualified and competent investors who take that approach. So I'm not criticizing it. It just doesn't, doesn't work for us. And so... We've said, all right, we're going to be Fort Collins to Pueblo to Aspen, and kind of that semicircle is our shopping area. There's 3,513 buildings between 10 and 100 units, which is roughly that two to $20 million space. And if we pick up two to three of them a year for the next 15 years, we're going to be stumped. And that's, that's, that's what we've chosen to do. I'm not saying it's right or perfect or the path that everybody should follow. It just happens to work for me. And if there's one thing I would, I would get across is like figure out a business model that works for you, not necessarily works for somebody else, not necessarily is the ideal business model that you're going to find in a textbook just works for you, right? You know, if you don't want to sign recourse loans, like don't go into a business that requires you to sign recourse loans. If you don't want to travel, don't buy real estate across the country. If you don't want to take outsized risks, like don't do things that carry outsized risks. And so that, that at the end of the day is, is my approach. And I, again, I'm not saying it's for everybody. It just, it works for me. It works for my family. It works for my team. And to date, it's worked really well for our investors as well. So on the sub-institutional side, I would find it very hard to believe that your competitors in that space know how many units there are in the state or in your target area between 10 and 100. Like, I don't think that's a stat that others can rattle off, even some of the bigger guys. So talk to me about the rigor you deploy from an intellectual standpoint in that space to find the deals and then also know which deals are coming, know which aren't coming, know which could be coming. How do you do that? So... I don't know that I'm perfect at it. I'm sure that I that deals I miss deals every year, right? And I and to the point earlier about no call strikes, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. But there is what I call a return on time. Like we've been in this market for nine years, we've paid millions of dollars of commissions on both the buy and sell side. That gets you up the list with the brokers who control the deal flow in sub institutional real estate. So. Everybody who sells sub-institutional real estate, uh, apartment building real estate in Denver and outside of Denver knows who I am. And so I send them, we, we have a, a PowerPoint with our buy boxes, so to speak, 
And it's like, what's a value add deal that looks for us? What's a ground up deal that, that we'd love to own? And oh, by the way, here's an example of one that we did. And oh, by the way, here's an example of one that we did. What's a, uh, you know, a, a joint venture that might look well to us? What's a mountain deal? We've, we've ventured up into the mountains very, very profitably, but it's a whole different ballgame. Like the labor is totally different. The tenants are totally different. It costs twice as much to snake a plumbing line in, in Leadville, Colorado as it does in Denver, Colorado. That, I think, at the end of the day, we've tried to do direct-to-seller, and like I've called, I don't have the personality or the salesmanship to be a, a, a cold caller, but I've tried a couple times, and every time I have, they're like, oh, you're the 14th broker to call me. I'm like, well, I'm not actually a broker. I, I'm happy to write the check, but I get it. Like, There's 14 other people, 13 other people that have called you already on this deal, and so I'm not, I don't think that's a winning strategy for us is to set up a bank of cold callers and try and find stuff off market. And so it's, it's really just be a good actor in your market. You know, don't, don't be scummy, which frankly is, should be a relatively low hurdle, but I've come across a lot of scummy people in sub institutional real estate. Do what you say you're going to do. Close when you say you're going to close. Try not to retrade, which ends up. Meaning I don't get a lot of looks at deals because I write offers at what I can close at, but at the same time I perform. And so that, that over time compounds into a reputation of somebody who, who is going to close. Most recent deal we bought was in May of this year. We closed two weeks after we went under contract, bought it all cash. And I think that, that bought me some goodwill in the market. And so it's, it's acknowledging that. Deal flow in my markets are controlled by brokers and therefore treat the brokers well and try and get to the top of the list of calls for as many of those brokers as possible. I'd say three brokers, I'm in their top two calls and I do a lot of business with them. I'd say the other 20 or so that transact in this space, I'm in their their first page of calls. And, and that's the goal is to try and be top of mind for the people who control deal flow and then treat them appropriately and only pursue deals that you, you know, you can close on. Let's break down that deal from May because being able to close in two weeks requires a significant amount of skill and track record to raise the capital, do the diligence. So can you walk us through that deal and the process? I can. Sure. So probably April 15th ish. Got a call from a broker saying, Hey, I know you're always looking for good deals. This buyer's equity just fell out and their earnest money's hard. And do you think you could step in? And so I dropped everything. I really like the price per door is 167 a door in a market where the next door, the property directly next door had just sold for 215 a door. So 167 a door, you know, felt, felt good to me. I said, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you an answer today, but I'll meet you at the apartment tomorrow morning and we'll start looking. So my partner and I, as I said, my partner is a contractor. He knows exactly how buildings operate and where the bodies are buried, sometimes literally. And we, we, we never found a human body, but we found many domesticated pet bodies in, in our time in this business. And this is the one that had, that was over closeted. We had, where first thing we looked at each other was like, we could easily put washer dryers in here, couldn't we? Like that's going to bump rents significantly. And so we got comfortable with it. We did a sewer scope and an inspection really quickly. We gave the earnest, I think it was May 1st, we gave the earnest money to the previous buyer. 
and we were now on the hook. And the fortunate piece of it for me was I have a fund, a value-add fund that I'm investing out of. And so I gave my investors a heads up saying sometime in the next week, I'm going to send you a capital call. Uh, it'll be for X. It was kind of a unique situation where the existing buyer, not all of his equity left, but some of his equity left and he couldn't close. And so he said, I love the deal so much. Will you allow me to be an LP of yours? And I said, or actually first he asked me if I'd be an LP of his. And I said, no. And then, and then he said, will you allow me to be an LP of yours? I said, sure. And so we ended up taking down 80% of the equity, the existing a buyer that we that the contract was assigned from took down 20% of the equity. We just yesterday leased the second unit that is fully renovated with uh, in-unit washer dryers. We hit pro forward 1445 in rents to get to a little over seven yield on cost, which was appropriate at the time in May. And first two units Unlevered, rented right? for $1,595. Unlevered, yes. So we had underwritten 1445 and the first two units have rented for $1,595. Um, no concessions, tenants love it. It's a unique product for the market. The other thing we like, and this is again, going back to the, hey, you learn more the more you do is buying value add in an area that market rate development has been successful provides somewhat of an umbrella, right? It's like, nobody wants to build high-end class A apartment buildings in crappy parts of town. They want to build them in good parts of town. So they've done the site selection. They've said, hey, this works. And now you know what a highly amenitized one bedroom with covered parking rents for around the corner. This property just happened to have a high-end 2018 construction, highly amenitized building with one bedrooms renting for 1900 to 2000 around the corner. Well, that gives us a pricing umbrella for people who don't want to pay 1900 but do want in-unit washer dryer and slightly bigger units. Well, trades out they're willing to pay 1595 And so, again, just kind of iterating and learning as time passes how to be the best investor possible. So so we 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 called the capital, the previous buyer put in 20% of the equity, we put in 80% or actually took out a non-recourse line of credit. Like I called one of my bankers and I said, guys, I don't really want to raise enough equity to pay for all the rehab. There's no debt on the building. Would you mind giving me a line of credit? No prepay, low origination, just gives me some cash to optimize. And oh, by the way, only charge me interest on the capital that's outstanding so that I'm not getting taken advantage of on capital that I haven't called. And they said, sure, you know, they're, they're at like 20% LTV or something. So they're, they're totally fine with that line of credit. And they were willing to be creative with me because I built a relationship with them. They'd never done this exact kind of a product like a, first lean line of credit to pay for rehab, but we'll we'll take that out once we stabilize the building and and hopefully return a bunch of equity at the same time. How have you learned to execute on the value add strategies quickly? Because one mistake I've certainly made on past projects is not executing the business plan as quickly as we wanted. Maybe the plans took longer, the strategy took longer, whatever it is. But in multifamily, you have to wait till units roll over. How have you figured out to do it quickly? So, there, there, you know, it, you're exactly right. Like there are big challenges there. One is what we call tenant Tetris. We set up a matrix of every tenant and their lease expiry. We happen to be in a state where if, if we don't want a tenant to stick around forever, it's not 
that hard to get them out. Whereas there's other states where, you know, friends of ours who operate in, say, California or or New York, you know, you you got no shot at getting them out ever. And so, sorry. So we set up a tenant Tetris. We, my, my partner, Chris, can generally do two at a time. So we try and set it up such that we have two units available to work on at every, any point in time. We have our, our, our crew that's on site working, and then we bring in specialists, plumbers, electricians, HVAC guys to do the, the, the permitted work. And then we use our crew to do, you know, painting and flooring and hanging cabinets and things that are, are, are more kind of general laborish. And so that's, that's one big piece of it. The other is we try and stagger our lease expiries so that we're never Denver. I don't know what Florida, Florida is probably different, but Denver leasing slows down in October, basically stops at Thanksgiving. It doesn't really start again till MLK day. So you don't want a whole bunch of leases expiring in October, November, because you're not going to do great. So we, we realize that and we're willing to offer eight month leases or 14 month leases so that we avoid lease expiries in that not great leasing season. And then the other piece of it is, you know, just being able to, to, to work quickly. We have crews on site. Chris is on site. Most of the time we have pretty much a set of materials that we use on every, every property. You know, the goal is to appeal to 90% of the renters, 90% of the time in a timeless fashion or not. It's not necessarily builder base, but it's also not you know, anything like you do that's gorgeous, beautiful, highly designed. Like this is, we're being better than the next guy in a class B apartment building. That's our goal. So we use white subway tile. We use off-white cabinetry. We use off-white or gray quartz countertops. We have like a nice blonde oak flooring that we've been using lately. So just kind of timeless design that we, we think will last. And it's all in stock. We have wholesale cabinet makers that work for us that we probably ordered, I don't know, 400 kitchens worth of cabinets from them. And so they're willing to work quickly. They'll deliver the materials on site. They'll, they'll uh, set them up. They won't install them, but they'll set them up, you know, construct the boxes. And then our guys will, will hang it on the wall. But it's just a matter of trying to keep the timelines as short as possible. You know, at the end of the day, we're now at the point where we can generally turn a unit if it's not a gut rehab, we can turn a unit in 30 days. I'll start pre-leasing in the last week of the renovation. And on the first unit in this building, we literally had one day of vacancy from when we finished the unit till somebody moved in, which was amazing. The second one, well, they move in on September 1st. We finished the unit about well, August 15th. So it's probably 15 days of, va- of vacancy on that. But we're just, you know, we're, it's, it's trying to manage how long it takes to get the unit ready to rent, how long it takes to rent it, and then how long from when they sign a lease till they move in. We just want all those timelines to be as compressed as possible so we don't suffer from vacancy loss. I want to talk about the fund and how you set that up and, and why you set it up. So what's the structure of the fund and, and why did you want to do a fund as opposed to just deal by deal syndication? Great question. Another one of those, hey, if I'd been in the business long enough, I might have done things differently, but I'm you know, a reasonably smart guy and I just kind of figured it out on my own. I have found that the best deals we've done have come to us with short timelines. And so to be able to close quickly and not be spending that time putting together a beautiful deck and you know having 25 calls with investors as opposed to spending that 
say three to four weeks of due diligence on actually the building itself and not raising capital really appeals to me. And so, you know, I think there are some advantages for the GP, which is that you only raise capital once. And so I, as I said earlier, I am, I am not the world's best salesman. I, I think people look more at my track record than my ability to convince them that they should invest with me and, and, uh, and we talk and I'm honest. And at the end of the day, we've gotten some great, uh, healthy relationships out of that. But if I had to raise, you know, a bunch of money on a short time horizon by being overly optimistic, I would, I would, I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> so it's just, just not the way I'm wired. So for me, the advantage of spending a few months every few years is really compelling. I can turn on sales Gabe for a couple months and then turn him off because he's not very good anyway and focus on being a good investor for the rest of my time, as opposed to every couple months having to go into sales mode. I don't love that. So I like that aspect of it. I like the fact that the capital's there. The the from the investor side, a lot of times you're making a bet on the the jockey, not so much the horse, because they're not able to evaluate the individual deal. They're evaluating. I tell them what the ideal deal is going to look like, and they say, "Well, I guess I'm going to trust this jockey to find the right horse to run the race." But you know that's a, a potential negative. But the positive is you get diversified exposure to our best value add ideas over that in that deployment period. The way we write our docs is anything between $2 million in the low end, $20 million in the high end, and this geographic area, any value-add deal goes into the fund. So there's no chance for us to cherry-pick out a deal and and buy it ourselves or buy it in a, in a vehicle that gives us better economics. No. Everything's structured that way so we don't have a conflict of interest. So you get a diversified exposure to our best ideas, and you get cross promotes, which is good for the investors, maybe not so great for the GP. Fortunately, we've gotten into the promote in every deal we've ever done to date, and hopefully that will continue. But you know, the cross promote structure for those who don't fully grasp it is is that if you buy three deals and they're each their own syndicate, two of them are home runs, one's a dud, the GP makes a bunch of money on the two home runs and everyone loses on the dud. In a fund structure, you buy the same three deals the dud brings down the returns on the two home runs such that the promote ends up being lower. So it's better for the LP to have that cross-promote structure. And because, as I said, I wait for fat pitches, I I don't worry too much about the cross-promote structure. We've done syndications. We'll probably continue to do syndications that don't fit the exact box of what the fund looks out for. But going back to the build a business that works for you, not necessarily is wealth maximizing, this structure had, works for me. It works for my willingness to be a salesman. It works for my willingness to go after deals that are hairy with closing short closing timelines, but might have stabilized 10 caps, right? If you got to stabilize 10 cap, but you got to close in three weeks, you figure out how to close, right? And that's, that's how we, how we, how we structure things. So, so I think we'll continue to do that. You know, there's this ongoing debate amongst LPs, GPs, Twitter, everything about, you know, the fees that people charge, we try and be at market. I'm never going to get rich off the fees. The only chance I have of getting rich in real estate is by crushing it on the deal and then earning to promote on the back end. And I think that's a very appropriate aligning factor, but I do need to charge fees to to pay for this beautiful class B minus office that I have. 
and to keep the lights on and pay my people and pay for the the uh, software that we use and so so we charge fees but but they're very at market or even on the low end of market and that's the way we structure things what are you going to change for the second fund that you learned or didn't really like in the structure or the design or maybe how you raised the capital in the first fund so this uh, we've actually raised two funds this this next one will be our third fund you know i'd like love to talk to you and other smart people we're considering um a management fee based on committed capital as opposed to based on gross revenue so a smaller percentage but of a of a bigger number i like the alignment of an asset management fee based on gross revenue because as gross revenue goes up revenue goes up but there's a lot of real estate funds out there that have a, a sort of an equity management fee based on the equity that's raised. And so we're considering that, you know, I'm going to talk to a lot of smart people before I got to the market and, and do that. But that, that's one way that we can have a little more fees to, to keep the lights on and to pay for the team that we have. Other than that, I, I, I've liked the structure we've had. We have a, a decent deployment period. We have a long hold period. We have uh, GP options to extend the hold period. And then we have a structure that like, I think it's 10 years with one five-year option to extend the hold period. And then there's a structure that any LP that wants to stay in the deal, we can kind of buy it from ourselves and any LP that wants to get out can get out. And so we're not forced to sell things prematurely because of fund docs. There's not a lot else I would change. We've been, we've been pretty happy. We've got some amazing LPs. I mean, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have the LPs that we have primarily high net worth started as friends of friends and then grew to friends of friends of friends of friends and then grew into a couple family offices and some people that we've met through Twitter. And, and, you know, there, there are definitely some people out there who, beat up on people who raise capital through Twitter. And I, and I get it. Like there are some scummy actors out there. But what I say is it doesn't matter how you meet your LPs, it's how you treat your LPs. And so we like to treat our LPs fairly and appropriately. And, and I think if you talk to our biggest LPs, they probably say that we do that. And the fact that we happen to meet them online is it's just how we met them. Well, Blackstone... B-REIT and S-REIT basically raised multiple billions of dollars a month for the past two or three years from the grandparents and parents of people on Twitter. So That's exactly right. They are the largest crowd funders in the world. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I was actually having a conversation with someone yesterday that and I'm really interested to hear your perspective. The A lot of these real estate funds raised capital in the 90s. And before that, there were no real estate funds. And these pensions and these big capital providers, foundations, gave them money. There was no one else doing real estate in this way. And these guys did it. And that capital is very sticky to those few groups. And offshoots of those groups may be able to tap into that capital. But for the newer generation that are entrepreneurs built their own business, I don't know that that's going to be the preferred source of capital going forward. 
It could be crowd, like, you know, your network, high net worth, family offices. But the idea of going around to CalPERS and like Texas teachers and what all these folks have done previously, I don't know that that's the guaranteed roadmap for everyone who wants to grow a real estate private equity firm or a real estate operator. I, I think for the vast majority in terms of numbers, probably not in terms of dollars, but in terms of numbers, you're, you're absolutely right. Like access to private real estate deals is hard to find and access to private real estate deals managed by competent, honest, trustworthy sponsors are even harder to find. And so to the extent that folks can find that, I personally believe that the risk adjusted returns and sub-institutional Real estate are going to be more compelling than what a REIT can get, but that's a personal bias. I'm sure there's lots of people watching or listening that, that would disagree with that. And of course, the, the tax benefits, you know, we, we distribute depreciation pro rata to everybody who's put a dollar in the fund. The tax benefits can be significant that you don't get in, in public equity investing. And we're, because we're so selective, we're very prudent on leverage. We don't necessarily have 35% LTV like some of the, some of the REITs do, but we, we, we are not putting on 80% LTV either. And so we're pretty, pretty conservative on the debt side. We view debt as, uh, as beta, not alpha. It's just going to amplify your returns one way or the other. And so I, I tend to agree with you, but, but how do you connect those well-meaning, wealthy LPs with the trustworthy, competent, operators that are small and need $150,000 checks to create their capital stack. It's not easy, right? Like it's very easy for the Blackstone biz dev guy to call up CalPERS and set up a meeting and get a $200 million commitment or whatever it is. It's harder for, there's no marketplace. There's no mechanism to match capital and operators. And and so it, it's it's right for Abuse, in my opinion, and we've certainly seen we've certainly seen some uh, some abusive GPs over the last few years. I and mean, I don't feel any need to name names, but uh, you just read the newspaper in the last six months, and you've seen some poor behavior, crowd crowdfunding. I mean, the, God, how is it possible to to raise fifty six million dollars and then not close on a deal, and then the money just disappear? That's mind numbing to me. And and there's going to be some bad actors, and so. I don't know what the right mechanism is. I, I feel incredibly fortunate that at this point in time, I have way more access to capital than I have access to good deals. And that goes back to that long-term greedy mindset of if I treat my LPs right, over time, they're going to be willing to write the checks. My best LPs, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time underwriting deals. I spent a lot of time writing the investment memos. My best LPs don't even read them. They just say, Gabe, you know, what's the max I can put in? And I say, 19.9%. I'm never going to let anybody be more than 20%. And they say, okay, great. Here's 19.9%. And so, like, I've built that level of trust over the decade or so I've been doing this. Honestly, with my best LPs, it's over, you know, 30 years of friendship. But that is, that is kind of my approach. I, I coined, I don't know if I coined it, but I, I certainly, in the first one I've heard of using it, a phrase called non-recourse equity, which is literally raising money from people where you don't care about the reputational damage of incinerating their capital. And I care deeply about 
the reputational damage of of any of my investors' money, and and I'd like to think that they they would agree with that in the way that I treat them, the way I structure the deals, the pickiness we are in doing the deals. It's all that that kind of answers the question, but I, I think I don't have a tremendous amount of insight into institutional capital raising because I, I've never done it in real estate. Well, you're spot on. I think how folks that want to raise capital from people other than pension funds do it is by two things, reputation, track record, which you mentioned. But one key thing I think is also surviving some sort of a real estate cycle, because that's typically when the music will stop and any problems will shake out. For some, it might have been COVID. For others, maybe it's the GFC. But some experience going through a major shock to the real estate asset class that you're in, I think is another good check the box to evaluate a GP and and what happened during that time. And if the GP lost something, that doesn't necessarily mean that this GP is not someone to invest in, but it's something to evaluate, I think, in that group. I had incredibly well said, you know, I, I was not in real estate uh, during the great financial crisis, but I, I, I was even closer to the epicenter of, of the pain in the sense that I covered financial services companies that publicly traded um, from 2008 to 2010. And it was a baptism by fire. Uh, and so how I, I, the lessons I learned, how quickly levered equity can get incinerated, I carry with me to today. One of my LPs, who's a wildly successful real estate operator, spent 2010 to 2014 basically making no money, working out the deals that they had bought in 2007 and 2008. And he told me in 2015, 16, 17, he said, Gabe, don't do that. You don't want to work for five years and not make a dime off what you do. And that always stuck in my head. That plus my experience in the, in the great financial crisis is why, uh, not not that I had any crystal ball as to what was going to happen in the Fed or the economy. It was just when prices got completely out of whack in 2021, we sold a decent chunk of our portfolio, basically sold everything that I didn't consider to be a long-term hold. And that set us up to be in an offensive mindset at a time when being in an offensive mindset has the potential to be profitable. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think there's going to be some opportunities coming down the pike. And I don't want to spend that time playing defense on properties that are underperforming. So we have 11 properties right now. 10 of them are exceeding our expectations. The 11th, I think, will end up doing really well. And so it's like we have the opportunity to go on offense at a time when going on offense can be profitable. Having the opportunity to go on offense in 2021 might have felt profitable at the time, but you might regret it now. And that's kind of our business model. My goal, my, my like long-term track record goal is to have a through the cycle returns well in excess of average and never lose anybody any money. That's my goal. I'm probably not going to be the guy who buys 5,000 units and renovates 2,000 a month in the Sun Belt. That's just never going to be the way we're structured. But if I can generate above average returns through the cycle and never lose anybody any money, I'll be pretty proud of my track. And to date, that's been the case. So on the track record, have you thought about deals that you essentially never want to sell, that you would want to hold for the next 20 or 30 years? Because 
you know, one thing that's not often talked about by GPs because, you know, it, it could upset LPs is that selling actually is very disruptive to the running of the GP business. Because if you have asset management fees, if you have management fees, and you now unload a bunch of assets, that goes away. And then you have to pick that back up again to continue to maintain the infrastructure. One way to avoid that, if you have good deals, good quality assets where the buildings aren't going to fall apart and you believe in the market, is to just not sell and keep refining out and then growing with now a very substantial base, which hopefully is creating more operating leverage. So I'll answer that in two ways. Yes, there's a, of the 11 deals we own, there's probably half of them that I would, I would bet money I would be ecstatic to own in 20 years. One negative, not negative, one thing to be considered in that is that you're probably going to have a CapEx cycle. Like if I renovate every unit in a building in 2023 and I want to hold the building for 20 years, those units after four, five, six, seven tenants are going to probably need another round of CapEx. And so, maybe refi two, maybe refi three, you return a bunch of capital, but you hold on to enough to, to fund whatever that capex is to, to keep the, the units fresh and to keep the rents at market. The second point, and again, this is, this is something we we're talking about earlier is, yes, asset management fees are the only recurring revenue that we have. The rest of it's sort of deal-based or promote-based, but I don't ever want to make a suboptimal decision on an asset because it helps me personally and like there's times to buy and there's times to sell right where i'm hoping that we're coming into a time to buy 2021 was a great time to sell if i had said you know what i don't want to sell this asset even though someone's willing to give me a buck 30 for what i think is worth a buck because i'm going to make three cents a year in 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 revenue I think that would be unfortunate. And I, and I, I think, you know, I don't know if you read that package of, uh, Trammell Crow memos from the late eighties that somebody published, but I went out and read them and to a T, the, the lesson learned was don't do deals just to keep people busy. And, and I was like, okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. Like don't go out and either do deals or hold on to deals because there's GP revenue coming in because of those. Like, there are times to sell and there are times to buy. When somebody wants to give you a buck 30 for something that's worth a buck, you should sell. And the fact that I have promote and significant co-invest in those deals allows me to benefit from the sale much more so than I would from continuing to get asset management fees off the deal. What have you learned from your worst deal? Two things. This was 10% net IRR. Probably shouldn't talk about that publicly, but I'll go ahead and do it. 10% net IRR, 6.7% PREF. So we were in the promote. Two things I learned from that. One well, hold, is, hold on one second. I want to stop you there for a second. What do you mean 6.7% PREF? How did you come up with that? I don't know. That's just how we structured it. It was, it you was just a like point, a, de- just a decimal it. like that. I've never seen that before. That's pretty I, cool. I have no idea. That, that was <laughs> just, it was like people wanted it to be more than six and people were happy with it being less than seven. So we said 6.75%. So, Pref was 6.7%. Net IRR was 10. You know, we got into the promote, but it's the worst deal that I've done. And two things I learned. One, and this is probably the, one of those things that sticks with you forever and ever and ever and ever, which is match your capital structure with your business plan. 
And I can't say that more forcefully. Match your capital structure with your business plan. And what I mean by that is on a deal with a little over $4 million of equity, I pay $660,000 in prepay fees on two loans, not one, but two loans. So I, I incinerated my investor's capital on debt that I should have never taken out because it was misstructured in terms of the prepay penalties. And there's a long story as to why I did that, but let's leave that at that. But constantly, if you think you're going to sell something, don't take out guilt maintenance. Don't take out defeasance. Like, just pay a, a little bit more to get a step-down prepay or pay even more to get a 310 prepay or whatever it is. Like, match your capital structure, both debt and equity, with your business plan. And I didn't know exactly. It was one of the earlier deals we do. I didn't know exactly what my business plan was. I didn't know exactly how bad the neighborhood was. And so I, I was getting a good price to sell, but I had to pay a, a pretty significant prepay. So that, that's kind of one. And then two would be sequencing. And this is, seems obvious in retrospect, but again, lessons learned in the, in the trenches. There's a, uh, there's a saying I love, which is, Lessons not learned in blood are soon forgotten. And this was a lesson certainly learned in blood, which was sequence your rehab in a way that you maximize your chance to maximize rental. And what I mean by that is don't go and renovate units so that they're beautiful and do zero curb repeal work. <laughs> you know, fix the roofs, fix the plumbing, don't paint the building and then go make the units beautiful. That's not a winning strategy. Like the first thing we now do when we buy a building, it was you come up with a curb repeal plan. We do some painting. We do some, we, you know, usually the windows. We'll do some landscaping and then we'll go to the units. And the idea is no one's going to walk through a crappy front yard to get in to see your beautiful units. And so, duh, I mean, it seems completely obvious, but lesson learned on that deal was I spent probably the first third of our capex budget on things that people driving down the street would never see like you know hallways and units and and mechanical systems and i didn't spend the money on making the landscaping look good and painting the building and just idiotic but lesson learned so th those would be the two lessons i love the second one because it's 100 percent true and it's also true for hotels we actually in the hotels you get surveys and people like review every part of the hotel. Like, how is the room? How is the public area? How is the hallway? So we can actually see which areas are worse and then deploy capital to those different spaces. Do you ever go out and get feedback from your tenants in order to figure out what you're going to do from a CapEx standpoint? We do. It's not as formalized as what you just described. So we, our third-party manager, and this is a whole other conversation about in-house management versus third-party management, but our third-party manager- Well, we're going there. We're going to go there. Okay. All right. Our third-party manager quizzes every tenant that leaves and asks them a bunch of questions about the unit they were in. Why are you leaving? Are you going to buy a house? Are you going to leaving town? Do you think the rent's too high? You need something cheaper? You know, whatever it is. And, and we try and aggregate that data and incorporate it. And then a couple of times we have hired third-party secret shoppers to go around to our buildings. And it does two things. One, it gets a, a another eye on the units that we could feed back information to ourselves. And two, it's a way to track our third-party manager to make sure they're doing their job. Are they 
selling appropriately when a tenant walks in the door? Are they are scheduling easy? Do they do self showings? Are they friendly? Are they you know? Do they seem like they're having a bad day? And are they dressed appropriately? And so we we we've we've done those two ways to kind of incorporate it into the feedback loop of making sure units are are appropriate, but it's not as formalized as as what you're talking about. Um, we do hire architects and designers for our our new builds, and so I think we're trying to meet the market through that that exercise, but. On our value add projects, it's more anecdotal than it is formalized. I want to close it out with your philosophy around third party managers and and what makes a good third party manager and why you don't do that in house. So we did. It almost put me in the grave, <laughs> but we did. We had a in house third party management, sixteen employees, five hundred units, four hundred and fifty of which were Class C. Turnover was probably the average employee probably lasted three or four months. So we were constantly hiring. I was spending all my time, this is 2017, 18, 19, not spending all my time on HR issues. I had one maintenance worker sue my head of, or threatened to sue my head of property management for sexual harassment. I had a gun pulled on an employee who then turned around and tried to sue me. You know, these are the things that go with C-class management, but were not how I wanted to spend my day. At the end of the day, you want to play to your strengths. My strengths are being a good investor and hopefully being able to talk to LPs and investors and, and, and make them interested in our deals. But my strength is not running payroll the most officially. My strength is not hiring somebody who's going to smile nicely when they're showing units. Like I'm just not wired to do that. And so ended up closing down, which was, again, not wealth maximizing for me, but closing down our, our, our in-house management and hiring a third-party manager. I went out and interviewed four, four different third-party managers. The two sort of have-to-haves for me are numbers that are impeccable. You have to have accounting that is impeccable. That is, I never have to question it. I have fired three, two or three different property managers in the past before I started my own property management firm. And the reason was their numbers were squishy. And every time I ask questions, and I come from this financial analysis background, right? So the last thing you want to do as a property manager is put squishy numbers in front of me and then have me call you and, and ask you a bunch of questions about why your balance sheet doesn't balance and why, you know, the rent roll is different from collected rents and all this stuff. And they, they did not want to hear those questions. So Job one is impeccable numbers. Job two is I want a seat license on your property management software that I can access 24 hours a day. I can look up work orders. I can look up collections. I can look up leasing prospects. I can see the application that somebody's moving into one of my buildings. And before it gets approved, I can say, you know what? I don't really want to rent to that person because of X, Y, or Z. So those were kind of the two most important. And then the third, those were the have to haves. And then the third was having a very competent maintenance team and maintenance structure. And the, the folks that we ended up going with met all three of those characteristics. And, and the simple fact that we were self-property managers for three years, three and a half years, gives us a tremendous ability to be a, a great asset manager. Like If you don't do property management, you don't know where the pain points are. You don't know where the bodies are buried. You don't know how 
people cheat the system. You know, I was like, oh, we had 42 showings, but 19 canceled. Really? Are you sure you did? Like, I'm not sure you had that. So let me go into the system and double check you to make sure you're not lying. And, oh, nobody's been interested in the unit. Okay, well, let me go on and look how easy it is to book a, a showing. And, oh, you don't have any showings available to next Friday. Like, that's why no one's interested in the unit. And so you can't pull BS on us. And, and so that's why we ended up choosing to go the way we did. I'm forever grateful that I did make that choice. I am not, again, play to your strengths. I am not wired to be a, to own a property management firm. And I, I am very fortunate to have found a, a group and a, a leadership team that is. And so we partner with them on, on 90% of our buildings. What are your investing in company goals over the next three years? That's a tricky question. I was talking to somebody a couple months ago who said their, their business goal was to deploy $150 million in equity into 2023. And I said, that is the easiest goal in the world to achieve. You can do that. All you have to do is overpay for buildings. It will work. You have no problem achieving that goal. So we, we never want to have like a deployment goal. And I don't know if you know Elliot, but EB on Twitter is, uh, has schooled me wisely in the fact that it's hard to be both a asset gatherer and a, a great investor. And I certainly fall more on the side of, of trying to be a great investor and not just gather assets and deploy assets. Uh, again, <laughs> not wealth maximizing for me, but my business goal is to have a team that can execute and onboard a new deal every other month for two years in a row. And so if you think about what goes on when you're onboarding a new value-add deal, right? Maybe it's a 20-unit deal that needs to be rehabbed. Well, we need to come up with a budget. We need to start ordering things. We need to make sure we have the team in place that can do the renovations. We need to have all the internal resources. We need to onboard the loan. We need to work with our property manager. We need to open new bank accounts. We need to set up insurance. Like There's all these things that go with onboarding a property. I want us to be as well-oiled as possible such that we can onboard a new property every other month for two years straight. And that, and that goes back to the point, which is I want to buy 100% of the deals that pencil and 0% of the deals that don't pencil. And if, I, if my goal was to deploy $50 million, I can guarantee you I could deploy $50 million. It might not be a profitable deployment, but I could do it. And my goal is to profitably deploy money because life's just easier when you do great deals. I mean, doing hard deals is, is hard. It's just doing deals, period, is hard. But then doing mediocre deals is really hard because then you, as you to, to what we were talking about earlier, you, you end up spending all your time trying to clean up the mess as opposed to making money. I can't imagine spending 12 hours a day right now trying to figure out what to do with a rate cap that's expiring and should I sell into a soft market? Should I do a capital call to buy this rate cap? Should I take some predatory prep? Like I can't imagine spending my days doing that. That would be soul crushing in a lot of ways. And so, you know, we just try and do great deals and then we, we don't, we don't worry about that kind of stuff. Do you have to change anything right now with your model or your program in order to be able to onboard a deal a month? deal every other month. And we just need to get slight. So one thing we've done in this kind of deal slowdown, right? We bought a deal in May. We have nothing in escrow right now. The previous deal we bought was in October of last year. We spent a lot of that downtime 
Uh, I hired an MIT process engineer who was a wonderful woman. who's was a friend of mine. She was between jobs and she came in and sat down with me and my partner who are like, have extraordinary amount of information in our head and next to none of it written down. And she started to write down every one of our process. I think of our business as kind of five verticals, right? Acquisitions, renovations, asset management, accounting, and investor relations. And so we set up what are the sub processes for each of those five vertical workflows. And I think we had something like 50 sub processes and we're about 40, 40 of the SOPs have been written. What's this? The standard operating procedure has been written and we're at about 10 more to go. Recently hired an asset manager and COO when he's going to finish that process. But I think when we get that operating manual put together, I think we'll be in the place. We certainly have the, the right butts and seats. Now it's just a matter of having all of that process documented so that we, we don't miss anything. Right. And that's where the mistakes get made is like, you know what? We should really look for rodent infestation, but we forgot this deal. And oh, lo and behold, there were you know, foals that were running around the bottom. Like you just need to have that checklist that says every mistake we've ever made in the past, we're going to put it on a checklist so we don't make it again. And it's, it's a, it's a reps game, right? It's like, you got to do a bunch of deals and then you learn the mistakes and then you don't make those mistakes again and make new mistakes. And, and so I think that for, for us, that is the process of going from where we are today to being able to onboard a new, a new value add deal every other month, which is just finishing that SOP manual. I love it. So I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? Well, I'd love to stay at some of yours now that I've, I've seen... Bring you over to my side now. Yeah, yeah. God, if I was in hospitality, I have, I have the design eye of a, of a newt. I, you, do not want, <laughs> you do not want me picking design. The grass eye. is always greener because your business sounds really fun. <laughs> my partner is, is, is amazing in that he, he has... He's a construction guy, but he also has a great design eye. So, you know, there's there's fancy hotels that have been amazing. We stayed at the Grand Britannia in Athens, Greece last summer. It was had a lot of family history. It was amazing. We stayed at a lot of the fancy New York hotels, Peninsula, Pierre, and da 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 da. Believe it or not, probably my favorite, at least because it's recent, my favorite hotel is a hotel in San Gimignano, Italy, which is Tuscany, called La Momoraia. And Momoraya is Italian for murmurs. And it used to be a abbey full of nuns. And the other farmers in the area would hear murmurs at prayer time. And so they called it La Momoraya. And the owners are out of Milan. It's a 24-unit uh, boutique hotel that has the best food I've ever had. They, they grow their own wine. It's on a vineyard. They grow their own olive oil. It's on, they have olive trees. They have a, a horizon pool looking at the city of San Gimignano, which is a beautiful old Tuscan hill town. Food was out of control. Price was completely reasonable. We ordered a bottle of wine the first night and it was 17 euros. And we're like, gotta love it. And, and, they forgot uh, the zero, I think. I think so. And, and my son just had an absolute blast. And so that story may change, but I'm going to go with La Mormoraia in San, San Gimignano, Italy. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jake. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat and um, get to know you a little bit better. So thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at 
Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.